Hello and welcome to another episode of National Review's Capital Record. I am your host, David Bonson, and I am joined today, I believe it is the fourth time now, uh, in fact, it is the fourth time, by uh, my dear friend, Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, you know him well from a number of different media and, and uh, public service avenues. Those of us on Wall Street know him. Um, as a longtime participant in capital markets and having spent the last uh, 15 years or so with Skybridge Capital, um, he is currently a, a leading voice around the uh, Bitcoin and crypto movement. And, and you frequently see him on CNBC and other avenues. Uh, and of course, you, he, he uh, is known for a brief stint in the Trump administration. I know him, though, as and uh, I wish he wasn't listening as I say this because I, I just believe, mean this so sincerely and would say it if he wasn't listening. Um, I think I've met three people, four people in my entire life that I would just say, no matter what, they're going to be back. They're going to keep going. They're not going away. They can't be killed. I will invest in whatever they're doing because I believe in them and their resilience. Three or four is not a lot. Uh, there's probably more out there. I just don't happen to know, but I know Anthony and he's one of those three or four. He's a fighter and a survivor and he's my friend. Anthony, welcome to National Review's Capital Record. All right. Well, I mean, I appreciate a eulogy before my death. I mean, I may have to get you on the eulogy list now, Bonson. I mean, that was that was very nice of you. And I, but I but I feel the same way about you. I, I, I will say something about you as we start this podcast. Um, your intellectual curiosity is endlessly fascinating, but also your neuroplasticity because you're able to change your mind. You don't feel like you have to be frozen in any one level of conviction. And in one of these podcasts, uh, you changed my mind about some of the things that were going on related to COVID-19 and some of the things that were going on in terms of, uh, decisions that were made around COVID-19. And you were right. Frankly, I was wrong. Um, and, uh, so I love coming on this podcast cause it's, uh, it pushes me intellectually. I, I'm moving the chains in my brain every time I see you. Well, I, I appreciate that. I think, um, Friedrich Hayek, you know, economically was a huge influence of mine. And, and there's a thing I learned early on when he talked about the intellectual adventure that there, there's a sort of moral dimension to this intellectual adventure. And it occurred to me as a conservative who believes in conserving certain, time-held principles and puts the burden of proof uh, high before we change from certain norms and conventions. That's kind of how I believe conservatism to be. Um, that, that Hayek talked about this intellectual venture that implied to me a constant learning process, that, that we're never done learning, even as we're conserving first principles. And so it, I think, I, I hope that's true about me. I try. It is interesting, though, isn't it, when you see in public life and in investing when people can, cannot change. And I think some of the most successful investors have, have been those that, that had to uh, make an uh, adaptation. Yeah, listen, if you, you told me 25 years ago that 50% of Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio would be in a tech stock, I would have said to you, there's no way. And I, I know you read Roger Lowenstein's book, Making of the American Capitalist, that came out in 1995. I was an impressionable 31-year-old, and I followed Mr. Buffett around. Of course, uh, I, 
I blame Buffett because you have to blame people in life. Okay, you can't take any personal responsibility in our society, Bonson. So I blame Buffett for missing the first tech boom because uh, he swore off tech, you know. But then again, obviously, I'm being facetious. The, the point I'm making is you have to evolve as a person. You have to be willing to embrace and accept change. And, you know, one of the reasons why I have such a robust summer program at Skybridge, I mean, Skybridge has 22 employees. We hire 20 summer associates. So what the hell is he doing doing that? Well, number one, it helps them with their career. But number two, I make those summer associates teach me something. I say to each one of those kids, I want to learn something. You guys get together, break it up into different categories. I don't want to learn the same thing from all 20 of you. So each of you are going to tell me what you're going to teach me, okay, and make sure they're separate and discreet. I'm going to come in and see you for two hours. And you're each going to tell me something about the world that I don't know. You know, it could be how TikTok works. It could be uh, a Snapchat filter that I'm not familiar with, or it could be uh, some new messaging thing that they're using with each other, a dating app, which I've never been on, frankly. But my point is, if you don't do that, how are you going to see where the future is going? Because those young men and women at age 22 are going to be 32 and 42 very shortly, and they're going to be running things. Yeah, I think I think that um, it's a wonderful idea. I wish that you could take the notes for me and then share them so that I don't have to talk to 20, 22 year olds. <laughs> Happy to do that. Okay, you know I'm like, you know I like being a camp counselor, Bonson. Okay, you're a little bit too cerebral for that. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people. Do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Now, I have a question. I, you, you were 31 in 1995. I was 21 in 95. We've talked before. Uh, you're, you're turning 6-0 this year. I'm turning 5. 6th of January. Six. Yeah, yeah, I turned That's 60 right. on the 6th of January. So, so congratulations. Thank you're now you. into, into this new decade. In, I'm still a few months out, but on May 30th, I'll be turning the big 5-0. So we've established that we're exactly one decade apart. So it's kind of an in-between separation. You're not like close to my parents age but you're also it's more than you know uh uh it's a pretty older older brother type deal is 60 right now an old gen xer or a young boomer where does that fit a young young boomer you know so i'm uh, 64 demographically was the last year of the boom so if you look if you google baby boomers it's 1946 to 1964 so i'm a young boomer um, and but right, um, but right on the edge there, but right on the edge. But let me say this to you because I want to apply context for people. I'm old enough to remember the discussions of World War II, and in night in the in the third grade in 1973, that was 30 
28 years after the war. And, you know, my uncle who fought in D-Day, there were news magazines at the time recanting the battle between the United States and the Allies and the Axis powers. I'm also remember the pharmacies in my local town that had soda fountains and soda clerks and, you know, red swivel uh, seats. And I'm old enough to remember that era. The phone that I recollect as a child was a rotary phone. And so uh, I'm really dating myself here. Um, But I, I also can tell you two seminal things that happened to me in the early 70s. Number one, in March of 1972, at the age of eight, my mom and grandmother celebrated the arrival of a washer and dryer in the small house that we had. They put it, they, they put them in the unfinished basement. And I can remember my mom and my grandmother so joyous, so happy that they didn't have to carry the laundry up to the local laundromat to do the laundry in a laundromat. So, you know, I'm from a generation of people uh, that, you know, these people didn't go to college. Uh, my dad was a blue collar worker. He was an hourly worker. Uh, my grandmother was a maid. You know, I, 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 you know, when you think about America and I said this the other day, I was speaking in Miami to the economic club. Uh, my daughter has asked for Italian citizenship because she's a singer and it'll help her with work in Europe. And so I had the ability to get that citizenship. I applied, uh, David, uh, they take you through your ancestry to make sure that you can get this citizenship. And of course, the kingdom of Naples, where my family is from, which, you know, congealed into Italy, but it was the kingdom of Naples. It was supported by the Napoleonic Code. So you can take the Scaramucci's and the DeFeos, my mother's maiden name, back, okay, to 1790. Okay, so my grandfather, Mason, great-grandfather, farmer, now we're back into Italy, peasant, peasant, day worker, day worker. When you get to the 18, the early 1800s, okay, it was uh, indentured farmer, okay, or serf, okay, uh, before him, feudal farmer, Okay, and why am I saying this? Okay, I am from a family of peasants and day workers and indentured farmers, as proven by the Napoleonic Code in my ancestry. How could you not be in love with America? How could you not have a full-on, unconditional love affair? Whatever is going on in America, its ups and downs, the trials and tribulations of the spirit of the country of America— Think of that family arriving in the 1920s and a hundred short years later, uh, you, you, you've, you've moved classes, you've created aspirational opportunity, financial independence, um, and you were able to do it in America. If, if, if you go back to the town that my grandparents came from, God bless them, it's a beautiful mountain town in Italy, but I would be a peasant or a day worker or potentially a brasserie owner, restaurante owner, something like that. I would not be doing what I'm doing here in America. And so so I bring I bring all this up because I am older than you. Okay. You probably remember a touchstone phone, not a rotary phone. 
you know, you, you, I'm sure you've experienced LPs because of your parents, but you were well into CDs uh, by the it time tape, you tape cassettes, yeah, tape cassettes, yeah, but yeah. you were moving, you know, you, you know, you remember eight tracks, yeah, they just from actually from my grandparents, eight tracks, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, eight tracks is what we put in the car, right? You know, we had eight track cassettes, and um, again, I'm not trying to sound like an old fart or anything like that. I'm just pointing out that there's a changes that are happening exponentially, technology wise. But the bedrock of America, the the bedrock, the stuff that you want to preserve as a conservative, it's still there. Okay, it just has to be reignited, and it has to be explained to people. It has to be explained to people that this can and still will be a great aspirational society. And and yes, there's a tendency towards socialism. There's a tendency towards Marxism, and there's a tendency towards trying to strip out our individuality. I understand that. I understand the impulses of those people. It's usually a false superiority that's being driven by those people. Um, but but the truth be told, this is a nation of risk takers. This is a nation. Uh, you didn't get here. Your family, my family, other people listening, you got risk takers in your family. I mean, unless you were born here like the Native Americans, which is possible, I'm not saying that, but you're probably coming from Europe or Asia because you were escaping something. And uh, what were you escaping? You were escaping tyranny. You were escaping uh, suppression of either an aristocracy or an autocracy, one or the two. Well, and, and I think that historically, the point you're making is borne out that the um, advent of sort of post-enlightenment classical liberalism and em an embrace of uh, free enterprise, what Deirdre McCloskey is referred to as the, the great enrichment, it did take place it, throughout Europe as well in the same area you're describing of the late 18th century into the early 19th century. But And there was a, a nice boost in growth in, in Europe as well, but it wasn't the same as it was in America and then when we went into the Industrial Revolution, which was really a global phenomena, there was a disproportionate impact in America because I think the benefits of this post-enlightenment modernity and advent of free enterprise, of rule of law, of, of so many of the structural things that from a market's standpoint led to an incredible enrichment and growth of opportunity that you're describing and prosperity um, America sort of leveraged it more than anywhere else. And I think that is a byproduct of the uniqueness of the American experiment. Um, my, my, the timing of our situation, it was my, so my great grandpa and grandpa and dad were all born in the States, but it was my great, great grandpa who was a stowaway coming from Denmark. And, and then they ended up getting to the railroad deal and did that kind of hard blue collar stuff. And my father was the first to graduate college. My grandpa had done GI but um, started working after World War II, and, and my dad became this great Christian intellectual, not, not a moneymaker, um, but, but a brilliant guy. And, and so it's, it's a fun family history, all, much like yours, all of which you can see some of these great elements of the human spirit, of aspiration, of, of getting through difficult times. I guess let me ask you a question. When you talk about we still have this DNA, I think you're right. When we talk about the entrepreneurialism, that's one thing that just I, it drives me bonkers that we don't talk about it more, that during the COVID moment, 
for all the what I believe was overreach and and misguided, sometimes well-intentioned, but sometimes not, but just the horror of having a society and an economy shut down, I couldn't believe some of the genius I saw from my fellow countrymen in, in entrepreneurial creativity, trying to work their way through it. And I don't just mean the fact that we all figured out how to do a Zoom like we're doing right now. Um, and other usefulness of the cloud and certain technological advantages, although that's a big story in and of itself. But I mean, the way people pivoted their restaurants and diners and the way they reinvented a business, I think the entrepreneurial DNA is still very much alive. But what that does for me is make me all the more worried and all the more um, determined um, to protect the meritocratic nature mm-hmm. of society. So, and I do believe from our institutions, from the Ivy League, uh, oftentimes the public school system, certainly a good portion of Washington, D.C., the arts, the just pillars of society and culture. I think a meritocratic society is under attack. It is, but it's, it's uh, yeah, I'm going to give you some thoughts. Hopefully you'll be provoked by what I'm saying. It is, but I think it's attacked from both sides. And let me explain why. It's mm. attacked from Marxists like AOC and Elizabeth Warren, but it's also attacked by capitalist oligarchs. Okay. And give me a second. Let me explain it because um, what happens in a society as it becomes successful, you do develop a robber baron esque class of people that are taking enormous amounts of economic rent and are pushing the envelope of monopolistic behavior to absorb more economic rent. And and it's not socialism to bust those people. It's not socialism to break up those people. It's part of what Schumpeter said related to creative destruction. And I will remind everybody listening that the first progressive, the father of progressivism, was a Republican by the name of Teddy Roosevelt. And if you go back and look at what he did, he put in reforms which helped the meritocrats. It slowed down the robber barons, the things like he executed on the Sherman Antitrust Act. He executed on certain things, a very famous thing. Edmund Morris writes about this. It was a very famous meeting in the White House where he brings five or six of the largest robber barons and he says, hey, you guys got to cut it out, okay? And and Henry Ford uh, writes about this. And again, whatever you think of his proclivities as a racist or an anti-Semite, what did Ford say? Whatever um, I think, I would be against it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, 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 the, but what he wrote in his diary is I've got to pay my workers yeah. enough money to afford what they're producing. Yeah. And I got to make sure that they're in a single family home and I got to make sure it's a good public school system because I'm going to be in my mansion in Dearborn, Michigan, eating caviar and champagne. I don't want them descending upon the mansion with pitchforks. But, but Anthony, you just changed the subject though. And so I want you to, because I think that what you were describing, you used some very specific words. They were very loaded, but they have meaning. A robber baron is somewhat pejorative and loaded, but rent seeking is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Collecting rents in the economy is a real thing. 
And if what we mean by collecting rents is customers paying us, then the word has no meaning because we all get paid by our customers. You mean something where they're using the arm of the state to protect um, yes. mon monopolistically. Yes. And so this, you know, um, the they're thing pouring, about Teddy Roosevelt pouring, being a Republican. Pouring money into the state to make sure that the state puts up guardrails to protect the moats around their businesses. And, you know, listen, you know. But, but so that's cronyism. Yeah, well, conservatives don't like me for this, but I'm going to say this to you, okay? Uh, the Citizens United case, okay, will be judged in 50 years as a bad case, even by conservatives, and I'll explain why. Um, and I'll draw a comparison. There was a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, where the Supreme Court ruled that blacks and whites, you could have separate but equal facilities. 80 years later, they reversed that case. And they said, okay, we got that wrong. You can't have separate but equal facilities because it just destroyed the South. Um, but, but, but Citizens United is the Plessy versus Ferguson for the democracy. It's created a separate but equal democracy. The, the notion that Scalia came up with that it's an exercise of free speech, I think is erroneous because go look at what happened to the Congress since 2011. These laws are being passed to benefit big pharma, big food, big military. And it's not clear to me that they're focused on what we need to have them focused on, which is there's a 20% group of people now clinging to Trump and the, whatever's left of the Republican Party who are dissatisfied with the country. They feel this aspirational working class family that I grew up in, or you may have grown up in, is now economically desperational. And so so what are, what is the Congress doing about those people? What are the establishment politicians doing about these people? They're making a historical mistake. I think, a, I think that what frustrates at a stage me- in the economy where you have to bust those people a little bit and to create more fragmentation. But when, when you talk about rent-seeking as using the arm of the state to protect a monopoly and then go on to talk about that Henry Ford was eating caviar and he didn't want the workers revolting, it switches to a class warfare argument. And I think someone can be eating caviar and the employees cannot afford caviar and they can be not rent-seeking. No, 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 that, totally you know, I, I, no, But no, what no, I'm I, saying, I, what I'm saying is that rent-seeking has to have a, it has to have a grounds in the law. And I'm, I'm talking uh, about what works, David, 25 times the pay of the lowest worker works. A hundred times the pay of the lowest worker works. Twenty-six thousand times the pay of the lowest worker. It's going to start to fray the system. You, but, you but, but you're, have, the, what you're, I'm, not, I'm not about equal. I'm not about equal outcomes. I'm just what? pointing out that when you get to a certain level, you can start to use the state to protect the moat around your business. But how do you, how do you, you, oh, you can and you shouldn't. And so listen, to the extent that if all we were talking about is cronyism, um, it is not true that you have conservatives mad at you about it. Real conservatives should be the ones leading this argument. Now, I, I think that, the yeah. term robber baron is loaded because it isn't intellectually defined and it has to be because I, I'll tell you why. I don't want people to call you a robber baron. Yeah. And I don't want people to call me a robber baron. And, and you're good friends with Stevie Cohen, who runs the Knicks and one of the most successful hedge fund traders in history. The guy is a freaking genius. 
But because of the exorbitance of his wealth, it is very easy to characterize him into this classification. Yes. And what I'm saying is that a robber baron is somebody who uses the arm of the state after they've achieved a certain level of success, pushes over the ladder and acts like they don't know how they got up there. And now big tech says, let's go ahead and regulate. Or now let's go, whether any industry that wants to then use a regulatory apparatus to suppress competition. I don't think Teddy Roosevelt was right in the way that he went about doing it. I don't think all of those monopolies were created equal. A monopoly cannot be defined as big and successful. It has to be defined as using an unfair advantage in partnership with the state. So I vehemently support what you're saying being anti-cronyist. My point is that when we talk about pay disparity, I think there's a whole different conversation not being had, which is, do you believe if the CEO made 26,000 times what the employees made, but the employees were not burdened with the wasted student debt cost from their joke of an education, were not burdened with housing prices that were exorbitantly perverse because of all the policy and cultural issues, and if they themselves were in an economy growing at 3.1% real GDP growth, and they themselves were achieving wage growth that went along with it, is there any precedent in human history for everybody's conditions getting better and people focusing on the delta between the top and the bottom? Because yeah. I've never studied it. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're making my points better than me. So let me parse a little. Okay. Let me, let me, let me parse a little. Uh, I agree, and obviously Roosevelt wasn't perfect, but let me make a broad statement and then give you some specifics. A broad statement is when things get monopolistic, we have to bust them because when you bust them, you'll unleash lots and lots of creativity. And so a specific example is AT&T, Judge Harold Green, during the Reagan administration, who I think you and I both respect as a conservative and a successful politician, uh, when that got busted, you took the $3 a minute to call Europe down to $0 a minute. The phone companies did quite well. They're still doing quite well. But you unleashed all of this massive innovation in the marketplace, which ultimately led to Web 1, Web 2, and potentially Web 3. And so, so if you didn't bust them, could you have had the same amount of innovation? I would say no. Okay. And so that's a that's a general and then a specific. And then I just want to make one more point is that for me, there's distinctions between people like Steve Cohen and Elon Musk and big pharma and big food. Okay. Elon Musk to me, okay, should have won that court case. I don't know what the Delaware court was thinking. He had a share. It wasn't the board. He had a shareholder vote. And he created monumental transformative wealth for those well, people. Well, let's be clear. This isn't subjective. This was the whole compensation package was that objectively $650 billion of shareholder wealth had to be created for him right. to get this package. So right. while it was a monumental amount of compensation, it was objectively proportionate to the amount of wealth created. Oh, yeah. And so to me, he deserved this. So I'm not... Well, you know, so you're right. You shouldn't use the word robber baron. There's, there's Elon Musk. To me, deserved the 55 billion. Pay him. He, 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 the shareholders approved it. 
Okay. Uh, Steve Cohen, his limited partners approve his compensation. God bless him. Okay. What I'm talking about is you're controlling now. Well, by the way, Anthony, I'm sorry. So do his investors. Because yeah, that, the, yeah, the only revenue he has to pay himself well, is, from, I mean. is, is limited, from his, his limited partners signed agreements that said, here's your pay. If you perform, here's your pay. So, I mean, that's a free market. Okay. Elon Musk's compensation and that decision, I think, is a disaster. Okay. For so many different reasons. Okay. Where is Big Pharma different? Well, I do think Big Pharma is different because they have a rotating circuit of people that are coming in and out of the FDA. Um, they've got certain protections that you and I would never be able to get. Um, whatever the vaccine injuries were and the experiment of the vaccine, they're now oh. um, uh, they're, they're, they're completely protected from any type of malpractice or, or liability. It would be like you and I, uh, it would be like big tobacco going to the Congress and saying, hey, man, we know that this thing doesn't work on a lot of people. It's going to give some people lung cancer, but no problem. We're going to give you uh, unlimited amounts of non-liability. And I, I, I think it's very unfair. And I also think big food, okay, you know, listen, this is very elitist for me to say this, but I'll say this. If I go to Europe and I eat in decent restaurants, um, I lose weight. Um, I'm here in the United States eating comparable food, we are poisoning ourselves in this country, okay? And you could just look at the stuff that is allowed in our food versus what's allowed in the European food. What the hell are we doing? And you know, there was a big fight 10 years ago about carbohydrate lab labor. Wow. Okay, so, I mean, you know, look, I mean, you could say, okay, well, it's a free market. Yeah, but most people don't know that glyphosate is in their Cheerios. They don't know that. Yeah, well, maybe they don't, but let me ask you a question. Do you think we have a problem with obesity because people don't know phosphates or because they eat like pigs? And do you think people don't know that you're supposed to exercise and diet? Because here's the thing. I don't know what to do about this because I think you're right that we have a problem with the health of the nutrition of the society. And I think it's 99.9% .9 about individual responsibility and behavior. So the nannyism that would be required to fix no, no, it not, no, no, is a trade-off I, I don't know what to do about. I'm not, but I'm not talking about nannyism. Okay, no problem. You want to drink the Coke, that's fine. They finally got on the label that it's 100 and the, the Coke that you're drinking, this the 20-ounce bottle, is 140% of your carbohydrate intake for the day. Right. You know, there was a 20-year fight about putting that percentage on the label. If you want to drink it, it's fine. You're entitled to it. I'm not a nanny person, but I don't think if you are in the responsible, you're a guardian of the mass population that you're allowing the food companies to focus on shelf life and preservation of the food and lower cost of the food as opposed to the general health. It has to intersect. Do you, you think know, that the issue- perspective, the Europeans, you could say they're Marxists or whatever, but they're doing a better job because their food is unfettered. Do we need to exercise more? Absolutely. But you're putting stuff in the food that's getting served at lunch counters in these schools that I don't think is healthy for the kid. I just don't. Now, well, you uh, say, okay, bring your, bring your own food in for your kid. Okay, no problem. But what about the poor kid that's getting the free meal from the, from the yeah. school? Yeah, and I think I know. I think that you can have at a local level. 
um, a change in what they are feeding in the cafeterias at schools and that there's all kinds of different things on the margin we can do. And you didn't say any of this. You're not saying like, I want Congress passing a law or whatnot. I do think that it's a big part of the problem that that's what our instinct is, is we need the FDA, the DEA, the Congress. It has to be federal, federal, federal. And I think that most change, if we were ever to really get any in some of these different elements, is going to have to be bottom up. But it's going to have I'm, to be local and community driven. It's dude. a Tocquevillian vision follow, of the country. I'm saying follow the money. Take a look at the campaign donations that go into the Congress and take a look at the laws that are being promulgated by the Congress. Follow the money and you'll see that the little guy who has no money is being left out. Okay. The other thing, the other thing I want to say, and you know this, you mentioned Steve Cohen. You know, so Nancy Pelosi has a better track record than Steve Cohen. Well, so Steve's got Steve's got you know twenty thirty one billion dollars nine offices two thousand employees, but he can't outperform Nancy Pelosi. Okay, so so you know this is the cynicism that's pervading the system now, and this is people are saying, okay, wow, this is so rigged and so unfair. Okay, that it creates a deep level of distrust in the government and tremendous citizen. I'd rather pay Nancy Pelosi ten million dollars a year. Okay, and no personal trading than one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year, and have her make one hundred and fifty million dollars flipping Nvidia call options. The problem, the problem is, is also is, and you know, I've been leading the charge on this just utter insanity of us letting Congress day trade, uh, whether they're using derivatives or not. And and by the way, it, inside trading, it's embedded in the nature of it, and and those laws are not even very well defined. There, my problem is it's a completely avoidable violation of public trust. If they say, look, there's no reason we should be exited from equity markets by nature being in Congress, I say, great. Already we have a vehicle, either blind trust or ETF passive ownership, and you're, you're separated from the active movement that is so incredibly creative of cynicism. It's ridiculous. That they can't get together to address this. This is this is the stuff that you know creates a imbalance. This is the stuff when you say it to somebody that's a worker, you say it to somebody that's on a factory line, or you say to somebody driving a UPS truck, like, okay, wow, this is really unfair. I don't have that advantage, you know. And 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 you know, listen, you're a meritocratic guy. You want a flatter system, make the system fair. Pay the people more. Okay, well, I can't make the money. Okay, no problem. Hey, hey, you want to balance the budget? You want an idea? This would never happen, but let me just give you this example, okay? If I said to you there's 535 people in the Congress and they get each $20 million of after-tax monies, each of them, it's a, it's a, it's a knock-in option. They balance the budget and they get the $20 million in after-tax monies. It's point. Four billion dollars, okay? Or they don't balance the budget, and they don't get the money. They would balance the budget in ten seconds. You know, the, the the point I'm making is that the incentives are so skewed now, David, that it is hurting. You're right. Great entrepreneurship, great DNA for the country, great tactical and forward evolution for people's businesses during COVID. I had to evolve my business. You had to evolve your business. All of that stuff is still here in this country. But when you have the government taking, you're in New York right now, I can tell from your apartment, 
you have the government taking 50 plus percent of your income, you are now a minority partner in your own life. Yep. Your majority partners are Eric Adams and uh, Kathy Hochul and Joe Biden. Okay. And you're a minority partner in your life. And so I would ask rhetorically, how are your majority partners doing? What are they doing with the money? And how are they doing it? And they're left unchecked, which is why you're walking through an airport that's ravaged. You're stepping over homeless people. You've got trash everywhere in the city. It's not getting cleaned up. Um, and there's because there's no accountability. And then you're saying, let's say, let's say you're not David Bonson or Anthony Scaramucci. You're 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 they're taking thirty four percent of your money. Or thirty percent of your money. So one third of your money is going out the door, and what are you actually getting for it? So for me, the taxes are a price for goods and services. I am paying this price for goods and services. Are you delivering the the, the goods or services? No, I'm using the taxes as a form of social policy. Okay. Well- well, you know, that that's where the big problems are. You know, there's just, just take it to the simplest level and talk about accountability. But then I think as a, a free market guy who has certain economic beliefs and principles, I think you take what you just said, and then there's another step beyond it that's even worse, is at the point of misallocation of resources, of not getting a return on investment from the tax dollars we're paying, of um, using the tax code as a means of social policy, all of these different elements of governmental incompetence and overreach, you then at the same time sow the seeds of diminished entrepreneurial activity because money is fungible. And what we have by definition with a greater funding need to government is a lower funding need to the private sector where wealth is created. So all at once, we slowly and marginally reduce the capital base into the private sector where the great entrepreneurial innovations and activities come, where jobs are created, all those things, but then also erode the tax base. Lower wealth creation below trend line, we've been significantly below trend line for 15 years, leads to a lower base for the next level of the very social funding that they purport to do. And so I think that we create a vicious cycle that then requires more governmental intervention to allegedly and virtuously address more social problems that, of course, at the same time creates more of the very problems we're trying to deal with. Now now you sound like Daniel Patrick Moynihan. You remember his famous line? I do. He said he was, we are defining deviancy downward. That's right. By creating this cycle that you're describing, which I think is horrible for the society. But look, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm an optimist. You're an optimist. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at this country and I'm looking at the abundance in the country, the oil production, the technology, the advancements in immunotherapy. You know, we were talking about uh, uh, growing up. My mom is a leukemia survivor. Uh, she was diagnosed with CML. Uh, nine years ago, she's on a drug called Gleevec. Uh, that drug was not here in 2003. It was invented at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it does have some side effects, but it's an immunotherapy. It is a drug that gives your body the, it replaces an element of the genetic instructions 
to have your bone marrow replicate good red blood cells as opposed to deformed red blood cells. And uh, this has kept her alive for the last nine years. Now, of course, we're all going to meet our demise, but my mom is 87 years young as a result of this transition from chemotherapy to immunotherapy. And so what I tell people is the cost of healthcare is actually going to go lower, even though the population is aging because the technology is improving and the biotechnology is improving and the immunology is improving. But here's the thing I would say to you, because uh, I am 10 years older than you. In 1985, I was sitting in a classroom. You were 11. I was 21. They told me we were running out of oil. And there was something called peak oil theory. Okay, well, guess what? We reinvented ourselves. More efficient jets, more efficient cars, more efficient electric generators. And lo and behold, fracking, uh, GPS, satellite technology, offshore drilling, onshore drilling, you know, we didn't run out of oil. You know, now we have other problems maybe, okay? But I'm saying that my point is we probably can solve most of the problems that we have, okay? And then the, the real question is how do you create social and economic abundance for people without Marxism, okay? In other words, like I'm all about a platform of equal opportunity for people in a country like this with unequal outcomes, I didn't pick my neighborhood that I grew up in, okay? And I did not pick my parents. I got very lucky though, because my dad, while not college educated, we lived in an area that had a really good public school system, okay? But imagine the kid through no fault of his own or her own, they're born in a poor area that has a poor public school system. You know, how do we solve for that? You know, how do we give them a starting block so that they can get around the track Okay. Or, you know, is it just David Bonson's kids and Anthony Scaramucci's kids? Because we've leveled up to some level of financial security or financial independence. Our kids are going to do well. Well, what about those kids? How do we, how do we help those kids? And again, I'm not talking about socialism. I'm just talking about how do you create a level of starting block opportunity so that they can, you know, they want, you know, look, I want there to be Elon Musk's. I want there to be Jeff Bezos's. Okay. I'm not sure if I want there to be Boeing and Big Pharma unchecked by the federal government when they get to a certain size and scale. Well, you know, Anthony, a lot of this is want, like you know? the financial crisis when people were screaming that, you know, Wall Street didn't have enough regulation and there were like 300 regulatory bodies. Big Pharma is not exactly unchecked. There, there's a massive amount of regulation. The problem is it is tricky because I share your concern that when they get carve-outs for things like um, they're, they're going to be given immunity on certain tort, um, I think that's a problem. The patent protection to me seems to have created a lot more wealth and a lot more innovation than not having it. And so I'm not as fired up as some of the left is these days about the patent protection. I think intellectual property is a bedrock of a developed and, and sophisticated civilized society. But, but we're in 100% agreement philosophically. We don't want greater partnership with government to the extent it means protecting a fiefdom unfairly and leaving others out. But where, where my focus is, though, is I don't believe the lowest hanging fruit 
to really improve these various things that we both feel strongly about. I don't think the lowest hanging fruit is with something we want the government to start doing or stop doing. It is with some improvements in the culture that are that are vastly needed. Uh, mm-hmm. Culture of individual responsibility. My book that just came out on February 6th, Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life, um, makes this point that we talk about income inequality in this country like we care about it, and yet we then go um, foster a culture that I'm telling you is not going to take the top 20% out of heavy, productive, successful work. They, We talked about this, my feelings about you at the beginning of the show. They could put you in the grave and you're still going to be working, and you know the same is true of me too. The Amen. top 20% aren't going to stop. So what are we Amen. doing? telling the bottom 50% that it's okay that they remove themselves from productive activity. We're Mm -hmm. taking their souls. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the lowest hanging fruit to improve so many of these elements about equality. See, I agree with all that. I I, I would say this to you. Um, I started Skybridge in 2005. Um, Three people in a room. Uh, Can't do that today. Uh, Skybridge would need three or four, possibly five compliance and yeah. legal people to get the thing started, or I would have to outsource it and it would be a monumental expense to Skybridge. I can't do it today. Yeah. So guess what? That helps Skybridge. Yeah. Okay. Because it creates a defensive barrier. The regulation yeah. is actually protecting Skybridge. Okay. Reg- regulation is a subsidy. Yeah, it is. And, and so, again, I'm, I'm not talking about unchecked where we should rape and pillage and steal people's money and all that sort of stuff. Of course, we need some referee on the field because we have emotions like human greed in the mix and vices like that. But I am saying, uh, how about helping the kid that's 20 years younger than me start his Skybridge or start his yeah. Bonson Investment Group? My point is, if we continue in this direction, you're going to have, you know, a hard time in certain industries, David, you're gonna have a hard time. And and, and that crimps innovation, it crimps growth. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, I mean, you know, I we're talking about Elon Musk for a second. I mean, I don't know. I love the guy. Okay, I, I listen to him. I agree with everything he says. No. But did this guy uh, break traditional totems? Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you something that doesn't reflect well on me, okay? My buddy, Antonio Gracias, okay, he's an incredibly successful man, worked with me at Goldman. He came to me in the year 2000, and he said, he said, hey, I've made an investment in this thing called PayPal. There's one guy, he's a very, very smart guy. He's starting a commercial space company, and he's simultaneously buying an electric car company. I said, he's going to run both of those companies? He said, yes, he's going to run both of those companies. I said, okay. I said, what are you doing? Well, I'm rolling the proceeds of PayPal into these two companies. Do you want to put a half a million in it? Do you want to put $250,000 in it? I looked at him, oh, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, bye-bye. Okay, so he went on to make $3.5 billion. I went on to make no billion. And the point being, that's America, okay? And that is so phenomenal, Okay, and and God bless those guys for having that vision, executing the vision, and you know, and you know, you know what else he is? 
the biggest taxpayer in American history. Eleven billion. Yeah, of course, the biggest, the biggest. They don't like they don't like pointing that out. But eleven no, billion. He lit up. He lit up the government for eleven billion dollars. Okay, in one year, and so to me, you know, I don't know. I'm a huge champion of the guy. Do I agree but with everything that comes out of his mouth? I don't agree with everything that comes out of anybody's mouth. Okay? When we Pop talk about the regulation mouth. environment that would have uh, made uh, Skybridge today impossible and all these various hurdles and burdens and impediments, yes. I'll close us with this because I know I got, I, you got to go catch a flight. Your mother's immunotherapy that extended her life. How long can we continue to develop those and extend the next Mrs. Scaramucci's life if 33% of our healthcare spending is going to bureaucracy, yeah. the red tape, to paperwork. So think it, about that. So think about that. And that would be, you know, listen, let, let me channel Borla for a second, the CEO of Pfizer. He would say that. Okay. So, you know, look, he would say, okay, yeah, but you know what? I had to get that, I had to get that uh, permission not to be sued yeah. so that I could put the pour the money into this thing. Otherwise, the cost benefit wouldn't be right. And again, we can debate the vaccine in another show. Um, you know, we, you know, I agree with you at this point. That should have been a choice, not a mandate. Okay, and I got that wrong, and I'm willing to admit that I got that wrong. But my point is, is that he he would be arguing the bureaucracy is destroying our ability to innovate and save lives. So, guys, what do you guys want to do? There's David. What I love about you, and I love about your show. It's not necessarily left or right. It's right or wrong. That's Tell right. me what's right or wrong, and let's go with that. That's the policy, okay? No no one's going to come up with a perfect solution, but let's let's at least recognize if you don't reduce that bureaucracy, how are you going to save more people's lives? And that well, was an accidental discovery at the University of Pennsylvania, by the way, and Oh, the yeah. guy's still alive that discovered is a brilliant guy. He and, and by the way, you have to have a certain gene. It's called the Philadelphia gene. They test your bone marrow for it uh, uh, because it's named after Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania. If you have that gene, you can take that drug and it will give you a normal duration of life. You won't, your life won't end necessarily from the CML. And, uh, you know, and, and God bless the guy a thousand times over because we've had nine more years of living with, although the level of guilt that we've all experienced from Marie Scaramucci is beyond reproach. We should just also <laughs> point that out as well, but, but we, but you get, you get my drift. Well, I'm all for a little Italian Catholic guilt every right. now and then. Amen. Yeah. Amen. We um, suffer. We suffer, Bonson. We yeah. suffer. Listen, my friend, uh, you got to get going. I love the entire conversation. Love your perspective. I, I do think it is helpful for, for people to have a lot of common principles, as Anthony and I do, and yet there may be certain ways that we approach different um, issues and in different ways things get worded. And, and I hope listeners right now um, can respect the fact Sometimes you can get to the same place, even if you're if you're coming with a sort of different approach, a, a, a different background. Um, it's part of intellectual honesty. It's part of this uh, Hayek's intellectual adventure. Uh, Anthony sells Amen. himself short. He's not only an absolutely ferocious um, uh, marketer and businessman and and entrepreneur, but he is uh, significantly more intelligent than people give him credit for. So I'll be the one to say that on his behalf. 
Um, Anthony, I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate the conversation. Lots of love back to you, my brother. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much for coming on National Abuse Capital Record. All right. I'm letting Anthony bounce there. He's got a fight to catch, but I do. I meant what I said at the end there. I, I think that sometimes the, the verbiage and some of the approaches sound like we're coming from a different place. And there's certainly going to be certain philosophical and, and um, you know, just different uh, ways that we view various issues. But I do think it's, it's a, a helpful thing to understand that sometimes not getting to the same conclusion the same way is okay. And ultimately, you know, Anthony and I very much disagree about Bitcoin. We didn't end up talking about that today. We've talked about it before. The, there's also been issues we've disagreed on in the past that, you know, one of us has changed our views on. But when you talk about the great thing of today's podcast, the underlying great subject of how to get to a society that's freedom and virtue um, is distributing its benefits in a way that is satisfactory and that that freedom reigns and that the virtue grows and that there is an enhanced prosperity and quality of life, all elements of our objective of human flourishing. Um, I, I think it's an entirely appropriate thing to focus on the fact that on one hand, um, DEI and ESG and left-wing wokeism is an attack on a meritocratic society and on the other hand, cronyism is an attack on meritocratic society. And, you know, in the weeds, there can be particular differences here and there. He very clearly is not making a class warfare argument. I pushed back on him a little on some of that stuff about the Henry Ford thing. But you, you hear his defense of Elon Musk's wealth, his defense of Stevie Cohen's wealth. And, and I'm completely with him. And at the same time, I think we have to recognize, and this is something I wish that my friends on the new right could understand, you're not going to get enhanced virtue, enhanced freedom, enhanced opportunity. You're not going to get diminished cronyism by turning to the government and empowering them more uh, with decisions that they are unqualified to make, with power that they will yield in an irresponsible and reckless way, a destructive way, um, a corrupting way. Uh, well, the need of the hour is is enhanced virtue, stronger local bodies, stronger subsidiarity, and a civil society that is up to the task of creating a free and virtuous one. I appreciate you listening to National Review's Capital Record. Look forward to being with you again next week. Take care.